This is hermeneutics, session number six, right? So we're moving right along. Next week we'll be almost halfway there. By the end of next week, that'll be about the halfway point. So let's go ahead and get started. And Eric, can you open us in a word of prayer this morning or this evening? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Lord, we just um, ask your blessing our time together, that uh, you'd open up our ears and we would hear. You'd open up our hearts. Lord, we ask that um, your spirit be upon uh Ray, as he uh, elucidates the material for us, Lord, and uh, we ask again that you'd uh, um, write these, write your words on your heart as we study your words, Lord, and learn how to exegete it, that um, that uh, we live it, Lord, that you make it ours, that we live it, and that um, we share it with others in our family and in our assemblies and our churches, Lord. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Eric. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the portion of the course that deals with Bible study methods. I've been uh, using the shorter description of exegesis, although exegesis is more the technical term that involves the original languages, but since the principles are essentially the same, in fact, I use the same notes in an exegesis course as I'm giving to you all in a Bible study methods course that is limited to the English, but the principles are the same, so we'll uh, call it exegesis, even though technically it involves the original languages. We'll only be using the English, however. So in that, I gave you an introduction to the area of Bible study methods, or exegesis, and I made some comparisons with science. So just quickly allude to that. I mentioned that when we deal with science. Science uses the scientific method, and historically the scientific method came from Bible-believing scientists that utilized their exegetical skills, transferred them in terms of studying God's revelation in nature, and in studying nature, they developed a scientific method, but the method utilizes the same principles that we're using in exegesis. So in reality, what we are doing is a scientific approach, you might say, to studying the word. The approach has within it, and we'll talk more about that as we get further into it, has the aspect of checking or substantiating the work that we do. In the scientific method, that is the stage of verification where you formulate a test that tests your hypotheses. We'll do something analogous to that in uh, 
testing or checking the work that we will do. And we've already looked at the first phase of exegesis. Last week, I introduced you to how to do a book study, and you want to do that in order to get the context of the entire book. And when you get the context of the whole book, then any individual passage that you will be studying, now you can put that passage in that broader context of the whole book. And you'll do some other contextual work as well as you get closer to the passage that you are dealing with. That will require further contextual study, but the broad context of the whole book You need to have that in order to properly interpret any given passage within that entire book. So you did a book study already. You did one on the book of Ephesians to put into practice what we talked about in the lecture. Today we'll take it one more step. We also, last time we looked at observing terms. In other words, I'm giving you these broad categories of areas that you want to make observations in, the most important areas. So at the end of our time, we made observations on terms. We closed out our session with a an example from Scripture, and we worked our way through some of the observations of terms. In fact, we did some broader observations as well. And today we want to look at the next category, which I'll get to once I complete our introduction here. So we're still dealing with the science and art of interpretation. This is the art portion. In fact, this is probably the more fun part of the course. At least it's the more enjoyable part for me to teach because it gets us right into the text and we can see immediately the results of utilizing the science portion of the course or the principal portion, the principal portion dealing with hermeneutical principles. So we're dealing with the grammatical, historical, contextual method, commonly referred to as a literal method, and the Hermeneutics involved in it involves the general principles we looked at. We're going to delay looking at special hermeneutics till we complete the Bible study methods portion. And for now, we're going to focus on the exegetical or Bible study methods portion of the course. Call that exegesis. This course will not involve, but part of the whole process is exposition. In other words, utilizing the product of your exegesis or the product of your Bible study by communicating it to either an individual or, in some cases, an entire congregation or audience from a pulpit, even. So let's focus on exegesis. And again, we're looking at observation. And we want to limit it and separate out What is in the text? What do I see? What is in the text? Just as a scientist makes observations before he formulates a hypothesis, we want to make observations of the biblical text. And the illustrations that I've given you and the examples encourage us to not just look at the words, 
but we look at everything that is in the text, being careful not to add things to the text, but to make sure that we saturate ourselves with the details of the text. We call that taking notice. In other words, observing with a purpose and looking for particular things, using perception, not just eyesight. That was part of our introduction. And then we spent some time observing terms. These are the basic building blocks of language. So obviously the Bible uses terms. Terms are words that are used in a given context. So we spent the latter portion of session six looking at terms. We'll spend all this session looking at structure. And here you'll spend the bulk of your time when you're doing Bible study. You'll be analyzing structure. So we need to not only explain what we mean by that, but give you examples of what what we're talking about when we talk about structure. Basically, structure, anytime you have two things or two terms in language, you have structure. So, structure involves the relationship of the individual terms to one another. And we formulate sentences. That's a grammatical structure. And it can be so simple that you only have two terms. For example, one of the shortest, in fact, there's two verses that just have two words in them. And one of them is in, uh, I think it's John, what is it, 11, where it says, Jesus wept. That's a complete sentence. And you have structure. You have a subject and you have a verb. And by definition, you have everything that makes up a sentence, a subject and a verb. And you have that relationship. One word is related to the other word in that one word is a subject and the other word is the action of that, that subject of that sentence. So you have structure. So two or more of anything, you have structure. Now, structure, I'm beginning by discussing briefly grammatical structure. Structure involves Relationships, so grammatical structure in, includes syntactical relationships. Grammatical structure primarily deals with relationships within a sentence. Now, I'm going to just kind of briefly touch on some of the things we talked about last time in terms of syntax or relationships of terms I somewhat introduced you to. Grammatical categories, but now you need to look at those categories in relationship to one another. And after I give you a brief explanation, we'll look at the second area of structure and we'll spend a lot of time looking at it. It's a little bit more difficult because it's structure in relationship to things outside, primarily outside of a sentence. Now, some of these Literary devices that we'll look at are within a sentence, but uh, in general, most of them are outside of a sentence. So it deals with the broader communication or the broader context of 
of things outside of a sentence. But let's take a look at grammatical structure, first of all. And these obviously include what you might say are very obvious, but if you miss these, then in many places you will misinterpret a passage. So you want to look for a subject, and you want to look for a verb, because those are the most important elements of any given sentence. You have to have a subject and a verb, or you don't have a sentence by definition. So there's a relationship there. The subject is whatever is the main concept or object being spoken of in a sentence, and then the verb is the verbal action that is being described by that sentence. So you have a relationship between the subject and the verb. Sometimes in some longer sentences, you'll have a relationship between a verb and a predicate. And a predicate can be a variety of things. It can be uh, a direct object. It could include other elements as well, an indirect object, etc. So you have a subject and a verb, and you have a predicate. And you want to be able to observe those relationships. And at this stage, we're simply observing. We're not interpreting yet. We're just observing. If you have something that is modifying, we call that a modifier. An example would be an adjective, modify something else. There's a relationship between the modifier and that that it modifies. And you need to identify the two because both of them work together and are in relationship to one another. So these are grammatical relationships. And we can go on through the list. It's not an exhaustive list, but just some examples here. If you have a pronoun, now you need to look for the noun that it refers to. And that pronoun may be in a different sentence from uh, the noun that it's in reference to. So you need to sometimes trace through a different sentence, but you have that relationship between a noun and a pronoun. You can also have relationship between clauses, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. You have independent clauses, and if it's a longer sentence with more than one clause, then you have relationships between those clauses and one another. Every sentence will have at least one independent clause. That's also by definition. If you don't have an independent clause, you don't have a sentence. It may have more than one independent clause, or it may have dependent clauses. Those are the things that you are looking for and observing. The complete sentence, Jesus wept, is one sentence, and therefore it is an independent clause, even though it only has two words. And there are other relationships, but these are your more basic and fundamental grammatical relationships. So you'll do a lot of work here, even though I'm not spending too much time on this, but you'll want to analyze the grammar and see how all of the words within a sentence relate to one another. Now, when we get to the interpretive stage, I'm going to give you a lot more information in analyzing uh, the grammar. We'll do what's called grammatical analysis, and this will be 
It's very, very important in identifying how an author is framing his thoughts in order to understand what he is trying to communicate. This is just the basic function of language that, remember, God built us with and gave us the capacity to be able to communicate with language. He has chosen to reveal his mind using the same language that he gave to his creatures. So we communicate using language. God chose, obviously, to give language in order that he could communicate to us. And we'll spend lots of time, and the bulk of our time will be within a sentence, but we'll go beyond that as well. So we'll do a lot more grammatical analysis. This is just a brief introduction. And what you're doing at this stage, just making those observations. Where is the subject? Where is the verb? Is there a predicate? Is this an adverb? And if it is, what does it modify? Is it Where's this pronoun relating to whatever noun? Where's the noun? Uh, how many clauses are in this sentence? Those kinds of observations. And when we illustrate it, and I think if you know basic grammar, and with a few illustrations, you'll pick up exactly what we're talking about. So when God revealed himself, he revealed himself in sentences. He revealed himself using subjects and verbs, using all of the conventions of language, and it communicates. So we derive what God is trying to communicate by analyzing how he has structured what he has communicated. So we call that grammatical structure, and at this stage we're simply observing that structure. So the second area, well, there's independent, dependent clauses. The second area dealing with structure deals with what we might call, in a more broad sense, literary structure, where we are making observations in terms of literary relationships. Now, these, in general, are relationships of one sentence to another sentence, or one paragraph to another paragraph, or to a series of paragraphs that all work together in a unit, to another series of paragraphs. How do all of those relationships work together to communicate the thoughts? In other words, we're looking at a variety and many thoughts that the author's communicating. How do they all work together to communicate what the author intended and when we understand how these things relate to one another, then we are able to understand what the author is communicating. And that's the bottom line. So let's start out by identifying basic, just a second. Sorry about that. Let's start out by identifying basic structural units, and let's use an example. Let's use the, the book of Romans, because it breaks down very nicely, and there's not a lot of disagreement amongst scholars in terms of the structure of Romans, so let's use it. And I want to use it to illustrate basic structural units, 
and we'll go through each of them from the broadest to the smallest. And the broadest is, I somewhat alluded to this last week when we talked about doing a book study. I mentioned that you want to look at the major divisions of a book. That's a structural unit. I also mentioned that most books don't have more than five, six, sometimes only two divisions. Now, depending on how you want to break the book of Romans down, you can break it into five parts using the blue lines there on the chart. Rather than using an outline, I'll, I'll refer to it in an outline later on, but right now let's look at it in chart form. So we have the whole book of Romans here, from black line to black line. You can divide it into five divisions if you make the introduction, and some Bible teachers make the introduction because of its length, a separate division, and don't begin the next division until verse 18 of chapter 1. So, if you in, include the introduction as a division, then you can have five divisions, because you also have a long conclusion, beginning in chapter 15, verse 14, through all of chapter 16. So, you have a chapter and a half of conclusion there. So, that would make up five divisions. Now, there's some Bible teachers that would uh, include the introduction with division number one, and include the division, the conclusion in division number three. And in that case, you would only have three divisions to the book of Romans. So that's the broadest level. And when you do a book study, this is what you're looking for. How does the author arrange his material? Is he dividing it in half? Is he dividing, dividing it in three parts, four parts, five parts? So we talked about that a little bit last last time. We'll talk some more about it as we get further in. So that's the first structural unit at its broadest level. After that, we have subdivisions. And to illustrate it, on the chart there, I'm showing five divisions for the Book of Romans. Let's use the second division as an example to illustrate the breakdown of subdivisions. And in this case, I'm illustrating it using the more purplish lines there. And I think there are clearly three divisions or subdivisions in that second division. Now, if you only see three divisions and you include the introduction, then you would have four. But let's keep the five division uh, breakdown here. So I see a division from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 as the first subdivision of the second division of the book of Romans. And then from chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5, I see that as the second division or subdivision. And then from chapters nine, uh, 3 through 8, the uh, third subdivision of that second division. Is that clear? Anyone have any questions on that? Clear so far? See what I'm doing here? So the broadest is a division. 
you break down divisions into subdivisions. Everybody following? Yeah. Yeah. Yep, makes sense. Okay, don't hesitate to interrupt if it's not clear. Because these are extremely important. You already saw something of their importance in doing the book study. And as we go further in, into more detail, uh, you'll, you'll be utilizing these as you uh, get further into the paragraph level. So each subdivision can be divided into sections. And we'll use the first subdivision uh, as an example or the first section of the second subdivision, rather, as an example. And I see it breaking down into three sections, illustrated by the more orangey or reddish lines there. So I see a section including chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 1. And the next one I see going from chapter... 2 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 8 and then uh, the third section from chapter 3 verse 9 through verse 20. Okay, so that's your section and your next well, let me just illustrate it here using an outline and we'll come back to this chart later on. So those are your structural units your three broader ones, and let me illustrate it using outline format. So at the Roman numeral level, and, and by the way, this is just standard outlining. There are different standards for making outlines. This is probably the most common outline format. So at the divisional level, that would be your Roman numeral, and I... See a division from chapter 1 through chapter 8, as, you, as I illustrated on the chart. And the subdivision would run from... No, that's not correct. Oh, 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 yeah, that's the introduction. That's subdivision A. And then B would be the second subdivision from 18 to 320. And then your number one in your outline would be your first section, and I identified that on the chart, verses 18 through 32 of chapter one. So those are your first three structural units. Now, at this point, depending on the length of the book, you, there may be some uh, other structural units that some Bible teachers, teachers utilize. But for most books, the next division would be the paragraph. And I identify chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 as a paragraph. Now, in general, you will start out just utilizing the paragraph breakdowns of your English Bible. And those will vary from translation to translation, but start out there and... In the process of your analysis and your study, you might disagree with the translator. Uh, when you compare it with others, you might see that there's other translations that break the paragraph in your version. They may break it down into smaller paragraphs. 
or they may ex- take into account more verses than the one that you have, depending. So this is depending on how you see the material breaking down. So, but in Romans, in the New American Standard, the New American Standard gives us verse 18 through 23 as a complete paragraph. And then obviously within a paragraph, the next structural unit is the sentence. And if you look at it, and you'll notice consistently throughout the Bible, one verse is not one sentence. In fact, in this case, it takes two verses to make a sentence. And in some cases, you may have several verses that make a sentence. And in other places, like in narrative material, you'll have generally shorter sentences. So one verse may have two, three. In fact, the illustration that we used a few weeks ago from the Sermon on the Mount, remember there were a couple of sentences in that one verse that we started off uh, observing. So whatever it falls, in this case in Romans 18 and 19, that makes up a complete sentence in the New American Standard. And New American Standard follows relatively closely to the Greek text. At least I've seen somewhat of a consistency there. Not always, but oftentimes it'll reflect it. So within a sentence, now you have clauses. And if you only have one, then that's all there is in that sentence. That's all that the sentence requires is one clause. But if you have more than one, and I'll give you an illustration when we look at it, at the text itself. There's a clause in verse 18, first part of verse 18, and then there's a second part to it. There's a B to it. But all I'm illustrating here, these are your basic structural units. Uh, by the way, I, I mentioned some Bible teachers include a segment So that would be where the section is there, and if that's the case, then the section would be A, and the paragraph would be 1 with the parentheses, etc. But this is pretty basic here, and in most cases, this will fit most of the books of the Bible. So that those are your basic structural units. And then within clauses, obviously, you'll have phrases, and we'll look at that later on. Everyone clear on these basic structural units before I illustrate them? Or maybe I should illustrate them and then ask the question. Clear. Clear now. Good. Okay. Now, if we take a big biblical passage, let's take a look at Romans 1 here. Now, we're going to read it, and the text is small. The only thing I'm illustrating here... This is kind of an example of what you'll find in your Bible. You'll have generally an indentation like this, or another way that the uh, editors of that version, whatever version it may be, they will break it down into paragraphs. So in this case, we have an indentation. And in a lot of cases, the beginning will make the first verse bold. It doesn't look bold in this uh, illustration here. But then it'll run all the way until you find the next indentation. And New American Standard, I've highlighted it in red there. Uh, We're not going to read the text, but it goes from verse 18 to verse 23. And then verse 24 begins another paragraph. 
Now, it also so happens that verse 16 begins the preceding paragraph, and that paragraph includes 16 and 17. So that's what you want to observe. You're observing, basically, how your editors of your English or translators of your version laid out the text, because that's going to begin the process, or that'll help you to get a starting point in terms of what are the units of thought? A paragraph, by definition, is a unit of thought. In other words, everything in the paragraph is related to that unit of thought. So every sentence contributes to that unit of thought. This is just basic language. Whether you're dealing with a murder mystery or whatever, you have a paragraph, and authors write in paragraphs, units of thought. So in Romans 1, the first paragraph of that second division, verses 18 through 23, that's first paragraph that you are dealing with. Now within the paragraph, what's the next structural unit? And you can observe it just from the text there, if you can read the fine print, but it runs from 18 all the way through 19, as I mentioned in the outline form there. So let's blow it up a little bit. And I'm kind of separating it out by using a blue color here. So we have a complete sentence from verse 18 through the end of verse 19. And obviously, basic conventions of identifying a sentence. You have capital letter for the first word, and you have a period at the end, or you might have a question mark or uh, a stop in terms of a punctuation mark. So it runs, there's, there's no stop until you get to the end of verse 19. So let's blow it up a little bit more here, and you'll notice... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, comma, no period, because that which is known about God is evident within them, semicolon. It's not a period. For God made it evident to them, period. So there's your period. Verses 18 and 19 is a complete sentence. And as we saw, verse 20 begins with a capital letter for the first word there, for since the creation of the, of the world is invisible attributes, comma, etc., etc. So, let's take a look at this sentence. And the reason I've highlighted this in yellow is that is the first independent clause. So it includes everything except any other clauses, and in this case, I'm going to walk you through it, and later on I'm going to ask you to kind of identify some of these things, but for now, we have an independent clause where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, even though there's no comma there. We do have a word that introduces a dependent clause, so the who introduces us to the first dependent clause, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and we're given a little help here, we've given a comma, so that ends that dependent clause, 
So in verse 19, because it's a comma rather than a period, we have some other kind of a clause. It may be independent or it may be dependent, but because it says because, and also it includes that, and also includes which, because that which is known about God is evident within them, semicolon, that actually contains two dependent clauses. It's not immediately evident, but if you look at it closely, you're going to find a dependent clause within a dependent clause. If you break it down, you'll notice because that, because that is evident within them, that's a dependent clause right there. And then the dependent clause within that, because that which, the which goes back to the that, it's going to expand the that, the which is known about God, that's a dependent clause that tells us the that. In other words, the that is which is known about God. So if you eliminate that, you still have a dependent clause because that is evident within them. And he tells us what the that is. That which is known about God. You see that? It's a little complicated. A little beyond kind of the basics here. But we have a dependent clause within a dependent clause. This is what you're trying to look at. This is what you're making observations on. How does this all fit together? So we've identified the independent clause. And for some of this, you may have to go back and kind of review a little bit of your basic grammar. But in order to understand this sentence, uh, this is what we have to do. So we have the independent clause, and then we have a dependent clause, and then we have a second dependent clause that has a third dependent clause within it. And then we have a semicolon, so you might expect that the last part of it is a fourth dependent clause. For God made it evident to them. You see that? Yep. Okay, now every independent clause has to have a subject and a verb. In fact, dependent clauses have to have a subject and a verb as well. But to have a sentence, you have to have a subject and a verb. So we can identify the subject as wrath, and the verb is revealed. That's the heart of everything in this sentence. If you identify, if there's only one independent clause, then the subject and the verb, that's the most important part of the whole sentence. And that's huge. That's important. Because everything else in that sentence is telling you something about this wrath. Everything else in the sentence is telling you about this revealing of this wrath. Even though you have a very complex sentence here, it uh, it all boils down to having something to do with wrath and reveal. This is why an understanding of the subject and of the verb is very, very important because that's the heart of this whole sentence. Now, the four here that kind of joins it back to what he said in verse 17, but it's still part of this independent clause, and it's not joined to the prior 
sentence because uh, it's a new sentence and it, it is just following logically, you might say. But anyway, I don't want to get into that detail. But wrath, everything we're learning about here in this sentence is about wrath. He specifies, he's specific about the wrath. It's the wrath of God. It's not the wrath of man or some other form of wrath. It's the wrath of God. Obviously, the verb, that's most important. Now, he tells us uh, where it's revealed. It's revealed against from heaven. Tells us um, against whom this wrath is revealed. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, it's just adding and explaining more about the wrath that is revealed. And now we have a subordinate clause that's explaining who these men are. We're expanding an explanation concerning the men. And these are men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And now he's going to give a reason why this wrath is revealed. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. And now he's going to expand that even further concerning this revelation, for God made it evident to them. So, very quickly, we've done... A huge amount of analysis here by just simply observing the structure. Uh, I'm not explaining much about the wrath other than observing that it's of God. So what does that mean? You know, that's the next stage. We're just making observations. We just made an observation about the verb. And now we're seeing some relationships. We're making observations of this revelation of wrath. It's from heaven against ungodliness, etc. We're identifying dependent clauses, making observations. See that? See how easy this is? <laughs> <laughs> now, if you here's the clues to the dependent clauses. Remember I said wrath is revealed and it's against men. Now the who relates to the men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. These are the clues that tell you these are dependent clauses. And then in verse 19, because that which is, and I gave you a little insight there. Now that one's probably the most complicated part. You have a dependent clause within a dependent clause. And then the four introduces us to the last dependent clause. So those are the kinds of things that you are looking for in trying to see how everything is related here. And it's a not only a powerful sentence, but it's got these elements that by observing then you can understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. Uh, do you see what we're doing here? I'm trying to identify structural units. That's the main thing I'm illustrating here. So we're looking at the parts within one sentence. Now, you can look at other things. In other words, there are other units. We looked at a sentence. We looked at clauses. We looked at dependent clauses. We looked at the main subject and the main verb. And you can look at some of the other elements here, prepositional phrases. There's several prepositional phrases in here. The wrath of God revealed from heaven. You could even include against all ungodliness. It's kind of a prepositional phrase there. 
with a compound prepositional phrase of men in unrighteousness. These are working ourselves down to phrases. And in this case, all of these are prepositional phrases. There are other kinds of phrases, but here's an illustration of phrases within an independent and several dependent clauses. Any questions on structural units? Very, very important. You need, you need to kind of understand these and kind of make these second nature because you'll be using them in every passage that you'll be studying. And you really, some of this you do unconsciously, you don't think about it. But in this course, what we want to do is help you think through it so that it not only makes sense, but you can be more deliberate in dealing with an individual passage. You're not just reading it and hopefully gleaning what it means. Now you, you're, you're really analyzing it and understanding it. And then you'll be in a position to be able to teach it once you understand it. So let me discuss briefly different translations, because I mentioned different translations will break up the material into uh, different units, particularly paragraphs. Now, you need to understand, and, and this is not as important as some of the other things, but just so you understand a little background on translations, there are two basic kinds of translations. One of them is called a more literal, or technically it's called a formally equivalent translation. And what that, transla that translation philosophy attempts to do, it tries to be as close to the Greek and Hebrew grammar as possible. Now, it's impossible to translate word by word because the translation wouldn't make any sense. Because both Greek and Hebrew are structured differently. In English, we generally put the subject first and then the verb. And then we might have a direct object or a predicate of some sort. And then generally we will follow with subordinate clauses. But in the Greek text, it, it, it does not follow that same Sequence. In fact, you might have the verb at the very end of a sentence and the subject at the very beginning. And in fact, the very first word of the sentence often is what the author is trying to emphasize or putting some emphasis on it. So word order is not as important in Greek and Hebrew. So it's impossible to adhere uh, totally word for word in a formal equivalence. But a formal equivalent, or we commonly refer to as a literal, more literal translation, uh, tries to stick to it as best it can. The disadvantage is you have a more disjointed, you might say, or sometimes more uh, uh, broken up sentence, and that may hinder our understanding of the sentence. So that's a disadvantage of the literal, but the advantage is it does give you more, more the sequence and uh, probably a closer relationship to the Greek and the 
the Hebrew grammar. There's another philosophy of translating, and one is not necessarily better than the other. They both have usage, 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 uses. Um, so I'm not saying the literal is necessarily better, but what I do recommend is use a literal translation in doing your your Bible study because it is, in fact, going to give you a closer rendering of the Greek and the Hebrew. A dynamic equivalent translation attempts to give you more of the main idea or the sense. It doesn't necessarily follow the word sequence, so it may be somewhat different from a literal translation, but it's trying to pick out the, the, the essence of what the passage is communicating. It tries to have a, a smoother translation, and as a result, it's easier to read. So that's one of the advantages. The disadvantage is it does depart sometimes, and as a result, it may need to include a little bit more interpretation, the dynamic equivalence. The bottom of the bar there, it's kind of a spectrum from literal to dynamic equivalence. Examples of the more literal would be the King James Version and also the New King James and the New American Standard Bible. The RSV is closer to literal, but not as literal as New American Standard. And then the clear examples of dynamic equivalence are the NIV or the New English Bible, or the Good News Bible. Now, the dotted part of the spectrum there, I guess you could say that's a, a third kind of translation. We would call that a more free translation. But most Bible teachers don't consider them translations. They would call them a paraphrase. So that's very different, where you have a lot more interpretation uh, it's certainly dynamic equivalence, but it is making it more readable and sometimes more simplified for uh, children, for example. So that would include the Living Bible, the Phillips translation in this free, and there's others as well. So this just gives you an example of the range of ways that the translator might approach his work of translation. That makes sense, sir? <clears throat> makes sense. So I recommend using New King James or King James Version or New American Standard for this course. Uh, and this helps you maybe to understand because it it uh, minimizes the the interpretive elements and leaves it to the interpreter. So let's take a look at uh, structural patterns. In other words, how do you identify where a division begins or how an author organizes his material? What are some things that we can uh, find in the text itself? And there are some common structural patterns and obviously the book is, is different and unique 
So each book utilizes a different pattern, and this, these patterns don't represent every book necessarily, but these are perhaps the more common ones. You might look, particularly in narrative material, a biographical structure. I've already mentioned that when we gave the illustration of the last half of the book of Genesis, the second division of the book of Genesis. It is arranged more biographical where the author deals with four patriarchal personages. So biographical deals with persons. In other words, the, the narrative or the material is developed in relationship to major characters, if you will. We have a biographical uh, structure. Uh, and by the way, these patterns, I'm going to give you illustrations of entire books. But you may have, for example, just a smaller portion of the book that also just deals with uh, images in that portion of the book that is biographical. So these are not just on the book level, but they could be at, at any level. These are just patterns that you can observe. But these patterns, most of these have got examples of particular books of the Bible that illustrate that pattern. Now, there's different ways of dealing with the book of Acts. It's a historical book, obviously, historical narrative. So, one way is to view it biographical. And if you view it biographical, and there are some parallels, in fact, you might find some outlines that divide the book into two parts this way, you can clearly see that the first part of the book, Peter is the most prominent. Not the only apostle, but the most prominent. And most of the narratives find Peter as the main character, and in some cases, along with others. And then beginning in chapter 12, we have an emphasis on Paul, primarily the missionary journeys, and then that was journey to Rome on the way to prison, but it primarily the material surrounds Paul. So in this case, you would have a twofold division of the book of Acts. Now I'm going to give you another way of breaking it down if you're looking at it from a different perspective. In other words, this is a more biographical. And this does exist. So uh, in the book of Acts, you have at least two ways that the author is organizing his material. Uh, one of them is biographical. And there are some parallels. In other words, you have many miracles of Peter. You have many miracles of Paul. You have a few sermons of Peter, and you have a few sermons of Paul. And there's some other elements that you could find some parallels between Peter and Paul. First 12, or first 11 chapters, Peter, 12 through 28, Paul. So that's a biographical arrangement. I gave you the example of Genesis 12 through 50. You can include that one as well. There's also similar, but a little bit broader, a more historical structure where rather than simply persons, the key element are events, series of events. And again, I gave Genesis the first 
12, uh, 11 chapters illustrates that historical pattern. So you might say the book of Genesis uses two patterns, one a historical, the first first uh, 11 chapters, and then biographical, 12 through 50. But another example of a historical pattern would be the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, you have basically two divisions. You might find a third one towards the end. You might have something of an epilogue. You might have three divisions. But uh, I've broken it down into two just by way of illustration. You have the first division to the blue line there. And then you have a second division. You have the conquest of the land, first 11 chapters, and then beginning in chapter 12 to the end of the book, you have the distribution of the land amongst the 12 tribes. You can divide the book into two parts. But the main thing I'm illustrating here is this historical sequence. In other words, you have a sequence that deals with conquering the lands. So you have battles. You have conquering cities. And then that stops at verse 11, and now you have more an emphasis on distributing the land that was conquered. So that's 12 through the end of the book. And then you can divide the conquest into subdivisions. With the first subdivision, you have preparation for the conquest, first five chapters. And then you have three separate campaigns in the conquest of the land. You have a central campaign utilizing the principle of divide and conquer where they attack the central part of the Canaanite Empire and they conquer the central cities there. And then once they have divided basically the land and conquered that area then they move to the south, and the prominent city there is Lachish. That was the fortified city, and the conquest involves Lachish and other cities. And obviously, after they conquer the south, then chapters 11, or chapter 11 deals with the northern campaign. The main thing I'm illustrating here is this is all historical. This is all, these are all events. In this case, <clears throat> these are uh, battles or conquests. Uh, you see that pattern? That's a historical pattern. Anybody have a question there or a comment? No? Okay. You can have a biographical pattern. You can have a historical pattern. You can have a chronological pattern. I used the book of Ezekiel. He seems to organize his material according to those little time frames that he gives at the beginning of those probably sections, maybe. They can probably group together into subdivisions and divisions. So a chronological time frame. You could even possibly divide First and Second Kings into some chronological framework there with the reigns of kings is prominent. You might include that as an example. Geographical, where the key element there are locations or places. Geographical pattern, patterns. Uh, Book of Exodus, I think, illustrates this 
somewhat vividly, where first 13 chapters, everything takes place in Egypt. That's dealing with the ten plagues and then eventually the, the exodus from Egypt. And then we have a portion, 14 through 17, that is in the wilderness on the way to Sinai. And then the rest of the book from chapter 18 through 40, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai. So two major events, the exodus in the first part of First Division, all the events preceding Egypt. Short wilderness travels and the experiences in the wilderness. Feeding the animals. Okay. Oh, you got your microphone on. You might turn that microphone on. And then the last part of the book, all of it is at Sinai. So that's a major event dealing with the giving of the law. Let's see. Somebody has a microphone on. There you go. So that illustrates a geographical pattern. There's what might be identified as an ideological pattern where ideas are prominent. Now, those first four are very common primarily in historical narrative. Obviously, they deal with characters and persons. They deal with events. They deal with time. They deal with, deal with geography. So you'll find those more commonly in historical narrative material. So obviously, you want to have something in books like Ephesians and Romans. We call that more of an ideological pattern where ideas are prominent. The historical events, the time frame, the geography are not as important, but what's prominent are the ideas. And I gave you the illustration of the book of Romans, and you can follow very logically, almost, well, in fact, I use the illustration of Paul is arguing like a lawyer in a court of law. He uses a lot of legal terms. So everything is laid out very logically, idea after idea, builds upon idea as you progress through the book of Romans. So it breaks down very nicely into the divisions. And within the introduction and conclusion, we saw three divisions, five total, if you separate introduction and conclusion. You can divide the first eight chapters after the introduction as God providing. The key word in the book of Romans is righteousness. It occurs over 66 times. So the book is about God providing righteousness. And in that provision, remember I divided that first division into three subdivisions. The first subdivision shows the need for God's righteousness. Oops. I need to change my animation here. Oh, I know what I was doing. Uh, I'm laying out the divisions here. So the first division are the provisions. 
or the provision of God's righteousness. Now, he's dealing with the particular provision of God's righteousness, dealing with the nation of Israel. What about them? Aren't they God's people? Uh, did God abandon them? Uh, are he, is he done with them? And I think the main theme there is God is vindicating his righteousness in setting Israel aside. But it's not a permanent setting aside. In fact, eventually God will be vindicated in that he will, in fact, bring what he has promised throughout the whole Old Testament. And all of Israel shall be saved. So God's righteousness is vindicated. And then God's righteousness is applied in practical areas. And he'll deal, he'll deal with several practical areas, chapter 12 through chapter 15, verse 13. And then we have the conclusion. The second division can be divided into subdivisions. In order to receive this righteousness that God has provided, man must recognize that he stands condemned and his righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, that's not in Romans, but that's Isaiah's terminology, but essentially the same thing. Man is lacking. There is none righteous, not even one. So a lot of detail on condemnation. That's verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And then the solution or the providing of it is through what he describes as justification. This is another word for salvation, except it's used in a courtroom. So he's presenting a case. Man stands condemned before the ultimate judge. And the only way that he can get out of that condemnation is penalty must be paid. And justification is the theological concept of Christ paying that penalty. And we receive justification by faith or by grace through faith. So we have justification. And then this justification is the starting point for us to grow in righteousness. That's the whole Christian life. We call that sanctification. So we have these ideas, condemnation, justification, sanctification, provision of God's righteousness, God's righteousness, vindicated, vindication, another concept. And then within that, you have all the other ideas that are presented to include to make up all of these broader ideas of justification. So you have substitution in there, you have reconciliation, you have uh, the concept of ideas of dealing with sin and standing before a holy God, all of those ideas uh, under God's wrath, under the condemnation part. So, series of ideas. That's the ideological. There's a few books, at least one, that you might identify as problematic. And that would be the illustration First Corinthians. And I think I mentioned this before. A key phrase in there is now concerning, which occurs... Chapter 7, verse 1, he's going to change subjects from what he dealt with in the first six chapters. In fact, you can break up the first six chapters 
smaller units. But then there seems to be a significant shift in chapter 7, verse 1. And then he uses the little phrase again in verse 25, and then in chapter 8, chapter 12, 16, etc. So problems seem to be the main element that ties everything together in First uh, Corinthians. So does that make sense, everybody following? Those are structural patterns. Any questions? Hey, Ray, this is Mark. Yeah, I have one, one question. Go ahead, Mark. Um, you said that not all books fit this pattern. Is that correct? Okay, go ahead, Mark. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to make sure you said before that not every book in the Bible fits these patterns. Is that correct? Yeah, these are just the broad pattern. This, these are like examples that I'm giving. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to expand this whole discussion in more specifics, looking for other kinds of structural patterns as well. Uh, these primarily you can find at the book level. Some of these others you find all over the place. In fact, we'll spend almost the rest of our time, probably the rest of our time, in looking at what I will call literary devices. And there's many of them that we'll look at, and I'll give you lots of examples of them. Any questions? Any others? We're a little early, but let's go ahead and take a break at this point. This is a good stopping point. Take about seven, no more than ten minutes, and we'll come back. Well, in this last part of session seven, or six rather, right? Six. We're looking at structure, and we're making simply observations. We're not interpreting yet. We're still just observing this major area. In fact, you'll spend more time observing structure than probably any other area, because it deals with more of the details of the biblical text. It deals with sentences. It deals with paragraphs. It deals with divisions, subdivisions, sections, etc. And sometimes within portions, you'll find that authors utilize a variety of, of uh, literary devices. And I'm going to go through a list of some of the more common literary devices. And obviously, not every passage has every one of these. Some passages may have one or two, but every passage is unique. But you can find these in many passages. And I'm going to start off with the more, more common ones, the ones that are most common. The most common is the literary device of comparison. And I'm not just talking about 
similes. We talked about metaphorical language. We're talking about literary devices here. And when I'm speaking of literary devices, we're talking about more extended portions rather than a single simile or metaphor. So we're talking about literary devices that use comparison. Where you have similar things associated, the association of like things. And let me give you some examples. There are some uh, passages and one particular one, Ephesians 5, beginning in about verse 21, we have a comparison of the marriage roles where husband is compared to Christ and the wife is compared to the church. So we have that comparison that runs throughout. And the illustration that Paul uses is the usage of comparison. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And that follows throughout the passage. So it's more than just a simile. It's it's a broader usage of uh, comparison. And we do this all the time ourselves. We'll use comparison to illustrate or to teach a concept that is abstract or not so easily understood or easily visualized. We might use a, a visual comparison. <laughs> In the book of Hebrews, we have Christ is compared to a high priest. So the writer in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, throughout that portion, that paragraph, he uh, uh, makes that correspondence, Christ being like a high priest and, in fact, a form of a high priest right now. Melchizedek is kind of the background there. In Romans chapter 5, in in fact, let's take a closer look at that. You might even turn to that passage where Paul compares Christ as a second Adam to what he describes as the first Adam. In other words, Adam in the book of Genesis, in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And there's a comparison there. In fact, we use that same illustration for the next literary device which obviously is the the alternative, which is contrast. But before we get there, uh, you might turn to Romans 5. And in the passage, let me just start reading, and we'll begin to see how we have a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. Therefore, just as through one man, that's the first Adam. Now, he'll specify that in a moment. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. 
So there's a contrast as well. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift uh, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So we have a comparison of the first Adam with the second Adam. And the sin of one, what it accomplished and its effect. And the grace of the second Adam what it accomplished and its effect. And then he also compares the actions of the one and the actions of the second Adam. Many died, text tells us. And then he goes on, many abound, or uh, grace abounds to the many. Uh, so you have that continuous comparison in there. And as I said, not only do you have comparison, but within the same passage, we have uh, the contrast of the opposite, or the dissimilarity. And from the same passage, we have the sin of Adam in contrast to the grace of Jesus Christ through the passage. The death of all, the negative consequence of the sin, and the grace abounding. Again, a contrast. So, weaved within the passage, we have both comparison and contrast. Now, again, not every passage is going to weave these together, but here's a passage where you have the two uh, right in the same place. You have one transgression, and you have free gift of grace, the contrast, the alternative to the transgression. You have condemnation, you have justification through the one. Death reigns, that's in the latter part of the passage, I didn't get that far in the reading. Uh, Verse 21, sin, as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's verse 21. In fact, he leads into that. So, clear contrast in the midst of comparison. And he's talking about the disobedience of the first Adam in contrast to the obedience of the second Adam. So that's pretty easy to identify, very frequent in scripture. Uh, This one is not so difficult to detect, and in fact, it's very, very common. So you'll come across comparison and contrast uh, very frequently in, in scripture. And by identifying these, now you are understanding how the author is structuring this material And what he's doing is he's using this in order to help you to grasp and help you to appreciate, and in this case, the damage of sin in in great contrast to the grace that is offered by Christ. And by seeing the contrast, you're going to develop all of those elements 
that the author is bringing out. And will help you to uh, not only identify them, but categorize them. So contrast. The third literary device, very, very common as well, is repetition. And we do this as well. If you're a teacher, you do a lot of repetition. But you structure material using repetition as well. And we can use the example from Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, the recurrence of, by faith, Abraham did such and such. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. And he runs through not only the patriarchal period, but much of Israel's history. And what repetition does is just hits over and over and over, emphasizing not only faith, but some of its characteristics, what it looks like in real life, over and over, emphasizing, and then the bottom line is the need for faith. But we see that this is a recurring theme amongst the characters of Scripture, particularly the outstanding ones that we have recorded in in the Old Testament. But repetition, over and over, in this case, same phrase, repetition, oftentimes the same word. What does Jesus do in Matthew 23? He uses repetition, so he he knows, he's aware of these literary devices. Matthew 23, he's condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, so over and over, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and he gives them an example of where they're hypocritical. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Another example. And by the end of the chapter, he's pretty much devastated them by revealing why they are hypocritical and why he is pronouncing judgment upon them. Uh, and this is also in the context at the end of his ministry, after they have rejected him, and as a result of rejection, now they are under woe. They are under God's judgment. So he pronounces these judgments upon them uh, to kind of reveal to them their desperate need for a Savior, even though they're not going to respond to it. So he condemns them. So it, the repetition just continually strikes home over and over and over. And no, there's no mistaking what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. In Deuteronomy 5 through 11, we have the recurring phrase, the Lord your God did such and such. The Lord your God revealed such and such. Or the Lord your God spoke. Or the Lord your God over and over and over repetition. And in that context, he's kind of emphasizing the revelation of what the children of Israel received, not only at Sinai, but now in Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding them of their past relationship with God and how God has spoken to them. So the Lord, your God, is prominent and over and over. Uh, to emphasize the need to trust him and to submit to his authority. So we have repetition over and over. We have another literary device. We call this one continuity. 
where this is similar to repetition, but it's a little bit vaguer and a little bit more broad. Repetition includes the same words or phrases, whereas continuity has similar ideas or similar clauses or similar paragraphs. And these paragraphs are often put together and they go together so you have continuity of thought. And it does the same thing as repetition. It just reinforces the same idea over and over. Instead of using singular words or phrases, it's more on the level of ideas. Let me use uh, Luke chapter 15 to illustrate this concept. I'm going to use a chart form again. And it's very important that you understand the very first part of Luke. Let me turn to it quickly and read it to you. And by the way, continuity here will help you to break Luke up into this unit of thought, if you will. So all of chapter 15 basically hangs together because of this idea of continuity. So in Luke 15, now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, let's do a little interpretation. We'll jump ahead here. But what what are they implying by the statement the scribes and the Pharisees say when they say this man receives sinners and eats with them? What what are they basically saying here? Uh, Luke is the one that tells us. in, 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 In fact, he's recording their words. But he's also announcing that Jesus associates with tax gatherers and sinners. And it's more than just an observation that the Pharisees and scribes are making. But what are they doing? They're basically saying he condones it and and, and socializes with it. Okay. And perhaps he's one of them. Yes. Birds of a feather fly together. So is he a sinner? Uh, in... If you've read through Luke, you already see that they tried to discredit him, and now they're using an association here to perhaps say, well, he's just one of them. He associates with them. And uh, Jesus doesn't deny the charge, doesn't go into a defensive mode. Uh, Jesus, you know, doesn't answer directly. But what we have in Luke 15 is a series of three parables that give the answer to what they're thinking and actually refutes their thought. So it's kind of, in this context, it's an indirect way of answering a false charge, you might say. And he does it using continuity. He does it using three similar parables. And these are very familiar parables, the parable of the lost sheep. We won't 
read through it. I'll just highlight a few things in it. But we have the second parable beginning verse 8 through 10, the parable of the lost coin. And then you all know the last parable, verses 11 through 33, right? Except you call it what? The parable of... Commonly referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Well... In the context, and within this unit of a series of parables, probably better be identified as the parable of the lost son. But you have this theme throughout. And each of the parables are structured even within themselves with similar ideas and concepts. That's continuity. Now, uses similar words as well, but they're they're woven in these broader contexts of three parables of lostness. The first one, what man, in fact, all of them begin with a somewhat of a sentence, at least verse two. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, there's the idea of lostness, so something being lost, does not leave the ninety-nine, in other words, he's putting the rest at risk, in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. So you have the element of this lostness. And then when he finds it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. So he's he's happy. There's the theme of happiness through all of these parables. And then also we have in verse 7, I tell you that the, we have an application. I tell you that in the same way there will be more Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That same theme, you'll see all of those elements in the parable of the lost coin. She looks and looks for the lost coin, and she finds it, she rejoices, and then there's rejoicing at the end of it, at the one that's lost. So a recurring theme there. And then the, the last parable, you have the same Themes, except all of them are expanded, and you have more detail and more detail in the parable. But it has all the same elements. You have the same rejoicing. Then a new element is introduced at the end with the second son. But uh, you have three parables that answer the issue of, is Jesus really a sinner since he associates with sinners? No, it answers the question. He associates with them because they're lost. Just like uh, the shepherd that sought the lost sheep, he goes to find them. So the implication here is when he finds a sinner that is lost and brings him back or brings him into relationship, there's great rejoicing in heaven. And that's an explanation of who he is rather than birds of a feather fly together. So this idea of lostness. See how continuity is woven through all those parables. And in an outline, I would put all 33 verses in one category there, whether it's a subsection or a paragraph. Well, it's a series of paragraphs, so it would be a subsection or segment or something in there. So that's continuity. 
Now, using that same parable, we can also illustrate the literary device of, of climax. And what we mean by climax is an author will arrange his material in such a way that it, uh, it increases from lesser to the greater and sometimes to the greatest. So you have kind of a progression there. And using the same parable, you have two parables dealing with lostness. And uh, and then the final one is really the climax. And what Jesus is really most interested in, it's not so much sheep, that's an illustration, not so much coins, that's an illustration, and even not so much a single son, although it's getting closer, it deals with human beings and persons and relationships and a an individual which is more illustrative of the sinners that he's associated with. So the lost son is the climactic parable. So you have a movement from the lesser, and I don't know if the coins are any greater than the sheep, but at least the two together are lesser than the lost son. So a movement from the lesser two things to the more important or the climactic parable of the lost son. So the utilization of climax. And you find all of these in good literature. These are not exclusive to the Bible. These are just literary devices that are very, very common in literature in general. The Bible utilizes the best of all that you can find in other literature that's out there. And obviously, we believe in inspiration. So the Holy Spirit is using literary devices that are common in our culture, common in other cultures, uh, in order to enhance and to communicate God's thoughts. So we have comparison, we have contrast, we have repetition, we have continuity, we have climax. There's also another important literary device. And and by the way, I've got these arranged somewhat in priority and somewhat in the frequency that you'll find them. Some of them, you might debate that, but at least these first five are very common. The sixth one that I have here may not be as common, but it is observable, and it is a literary device, and I can illustrate it using an entire book. Let's use the entire book of Second Samuel, the literary device of cruciality. And by the way, I should mention also, it's not so important, particularly this one. I can never remember this one <clears throat> in terms of its name. It's not so important that you remember the name, principle of cruciality or literary device of cruciality, but the main thing is to observe what is happening here. In other words, how is the author arranging his material? And the way the author of Second Samuel is arranging his book, he's using for the whole book this principle or literary device of cruciality. The first 11 or 10 chapters, actually, 
you see is very positive. David is rising to power. And he's having victory over external enemies. He's arranging his kingdom. Things are going together. So we might, if we had an outline, we could divide the book into three major divisions. One through ten, the triumphs of David. And then we have a little passage, 11 and 12. And it's a very familiar one. We might call that the transgression of David. And by the way, I like to use alliteration, so I'm going to use alliteration here. Triumphs and transgressions, you could come up with different titles. So the second major division is chapters 11 and 12, the transgression. That's the whole story of Bathsheba and David's sin with Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, Uriah where he makes the arrangement for him to be put at the front of the line so he will be killed after it's known that she has become pregnant. And, you know, just a total mess. And you might even wonder, you know, why is that in there? I mean, that's kind of a blemish on the whole life of David, but it's very, very important in Second Samuel because it's at the pivot point. It's at the high point of the career of David, and it's in that context that we have a transgression, and then now we have a downward cycle all the way to the end of the book. So you have the first part of the book, it appears David is victorious in all of these different realms, and you would anticipate his power growing and his influence and everything else, and now we have this story and the story's not just added, you know, sex and violence always give you an R-rated, so you have a broader audience or a greater interest. That's not inserted in the text for that reason. It's inserted in the text because transgression always brings troubles. So we might outline the third division as the troubles of David. And you find out that he'll have trouble within Actually, his old, his own uh, relationship with God, his own soul, with his, within his own family, within the extended family, and we have even external troubles that are chronicled in chapters 13 through 24. But the point I'm making here is you have kind of a turning point in the book, and the writer seems to deliberately put in the middle of that as a kind of a commentary or an explanation, David is gaining power, strength, influence, but then there's there's a problem that is introduced, and then we have a downward spiral in the, the life of David, uh, the last part of the book. So the principle of cruciality. Now, here's an example of a whole book, but you might find it within even a paragraph. Or you might find it within two or three chapters where the narrative is working using this pivot point, uh, the principle or the literary device of cruciality. You could see somewhat a portion of the book of Exodus using this same principle where the Exodus itself seems to be a turning point in uh, the experience of the children of Israel. They're in bondage. God deals with that situation. We have the exodus, and now uh, we have freedom. How are they going to handle the freedom? 
and the Exodus being something of a pivot point. Uh, and within that, perhaps even the Passover more specifically as a pivot point in at least the early portion of the book of Exodus. So you can find these within smaller portions of the book. Second Samuel illustrates it in the entire book. So cruciality. Our seventh literary device, we can call the device of interchange, where you have an alternating or an exchanging of certain elements in a story. And oftentimes you'll find this in narrative, but you can also find it in other books, like in the book of Ephesians, you might have alternation of ideas rather than events. Uh, I don't have a, an example offhand, but in terms of uh, epistles, but a good example of interchange in First Samuel, the first 12 chapters. And I think this is deliberate because not only I think in this case do we have interchange from Hannah and Samuel, who are the godly characters in the story, in contrast, so you have interchange mixed with contrast, Eli and his sons, Eli the priest and his evil sons, and the narrative goes back and forth, back and forth. And I think what it's doing, it's highlighting the godliness of Hannah and Samuel in contrast to the sinfulness or evil of Eli and his sons. And by art alternating it and using contrast, it heightens the contrast. So, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 11, focuses on Hannah and Samuel. And that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story. Then it gives us a little short paragraph, verse 12 through 17, on Eli and his sons, kind of introduces them. Then it switches back, chapter 2, 8 through 21, back to Hannah and Samuel. And then it switches back, a little bit of the evil of Eli and his sons, chapter 2, 22 through 36. And then back to chapter 3, all the way to the beginning of verse chapter 4, etc. So you have interchange. Are these making sense? Are you following on these? If I don't hear from you, yes, or follow. Okay, number eight on our list, particularization. The literary device of particularization. That's the movement from something that is general, a movement from the general to something very particular, from a general to a particular. Now, to illustrate that, if you've got your Bibles out, you might turn to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to use Jesus just to illustrate that Jesus uses literary devices. Jesus uses every technique of language in order to communicate. Not that these devices are inspired, but he uses under inspiration 
or at least the recorder of Jesus' words, under inspiration, uses these literary devices because they communicate and they help us to understand. And this is how authors organize their their material. So in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, we have a particular principle or a, a group of principles that basically are somewhat of a warning to beware of. But uh, notice how the material is arranged. And I'll just start reading verse 1. Beware of the practice of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So it's a warning here of living... Just a second. Living your life in such a way that it is mainly external. In other words, beware of living even a godly life in front of the public, before men, with a particular motivation. In other words, you're you're living in such a way that you want approval or you want people to view you in a certain way, in this case, as righteous, to be noticed by them. Because there's consequences to that. That's a bad attitude. That's a wrong motivation. So he says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you're just pleasing men. You're not pleasing the Father. So it's a warning. And he's going to expand that warning by giving three particular examples. That's why it's particularization. So that's the general principle in verse 1. Beginning in verse 2 through 4, we have the first example. So we have three particulars. First one is in the area of almsgiving. And and by the way, we're going to have continuity as well, because each of these are structured very similarly, and and some of the wording is very similar. Verse 2, when therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you. In other words, don't make this public display uh, before you as the hypocrites do. Notice the theme of hypocrisy. There's the continuity and even repetition. As hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, this public display, that they may be honored by men. You know, that's how they do it. So it's the motivation in terms to get the effect from the public. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. In other words, they don't have any reward from the Father. So it's reiterating the principle of verse 1, but now this is a particular example that was very vivid in the first century and one of the main areas where people displayed hypocrisy. And he goes on, but when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So he's going to give the correction uh, that your alms may be in secret and your father who is who sees in secret will repay you. So if you want to please the father, make sure that you're your reasons for your external piety or living uh, has a proper motivation. 
So the first example is almsgiving. <clears throat> the second one is a little expanded, 5 through 15. It's expanded in the Lord's Prayer, but the first part of it is very similar in structure to the almsgiving. In fact, some of the same words are used in verse 5. And when you pray, notice verse 2, when therefore you give alms, so verse 5, and when you pray, and then it has the negative, you are not to be as the hypocrites, again the reference of the hypocrites, and then he talks about the public display, etc. So you have all the elements there. But now we have a second particular. So here's another example of not only continuity, but of particularization as well. And then he gives a pattern. Uh, just like in the almsgiving, he gives a little advice, doing it in secret. Now he gives the Lord's Prayer. So here's where we have what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the believer's prayer that the Lord gave to uh, the people on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> so prayer, we won't get into the details of it. I'm just trying to illustrate the principle of particularization. So, verses 1 through at least 18 all hang together because you can see this common thread, this common tie-in that that arranges this material such that you have a unit in 18 verses here. And verse 16 begins similarly, and whenever you fast, very similar to what verse 2 and verse 5 said, And we have the negative, and then we have the public display, we have the use of hypocrites again, and then we have the correction. So, we have almsgiving, we have prayer, we have fasting, and this is Jesus. Jesus is structuring his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This portion of it, this all hangs together, so we just have three specific examples of the Three most egregious displays of piety or external holiness in the first century. And he's showing that if you're doing all of that with the wrong motivation, then it's not pleasing God. You may be praised by men, but that's all you're going to get. Does that make sense? So, general principle, and in this case, three Particulars. Number nine, the uh, counterpart to that, we could describe as generalization. This is when you have the movement in the other direction, where you have a particular example, and it might be given in some detail, and then it moves to giving the general principle behind it. And I think James does this in James chapter 2, where he gives, and also he's using a little contrast in there as well, where he's talking about the poor and making distinctions between the poor and the rich. And he's basically advising not to do that. That's the particular example that he utilizes, James 2, 1 through 11. And then he goes to the broad general principle. Because he says, if you violate the law at one point, you have essentially violated the whole law. So he gave the particular example 
and then he gives the the general principle or general idea that he's trying to communicate. So it goes in the opposite direction. So particularization, movement from the general to the particular. Generalization, a movement from the particular to the general. You might even see this also in the Sermon on the, on the Mount. An example there. When he talks about uh, 521, he says, You have heard that the, an- the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So murder can come in different forms. It's very broad. And then in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, etc. That's the specific. In other words, and in this case, it's the starting point. In other words... Murder begins with anger, with the more specific, and and the more general, or the more uh, the more general comes from the very specific beginning of of anger. So a movement from the particular to the general. So he deals with murder in terms of its uh, broadness to a very general idea from anger and anger doesn't always end in murder but that is the starting point 10 causation this is similar to particularization and generalization in that you have arrangement of material or progress from cause to effect from cause to effect Literary device of causation. We have a cause, and now we're told what caused that cause, or the or the effect rather. What what is the effect of the cause? I like to use the book of Romans. I'm exegeting through it right now, so some of these are kind of fresh in my mind. I gave Romans one as an example of literary units, but here we can use Romans 1 to illustrate causation. And you see this progress throughout. In other words, one thing leads to another, that leads to another, that leads to something else. And in there, let me turn back to Romans... I want to read a portion of it. Verse 18. And by the way, this is the beginning of this first division after the introduction, or second division if you consider the introduction a division. So this is the beginning of his whole argument of the book. This is the very beginning of his doctrinal section. And what he's laying out here is the condemnation of all of mankind. 
and he starts out with the idea of wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And remember, we already looked at this, broke it down a little bit. That's the main cause. So he's talking about God's wrath. Uh, now what we want to see here is this progression of ideas that, that are moving from wrath. And he's going to give the reason why this wrath is revealed, because that which is known about God is evident within them. In other words, God has revealed himself. There is revelation that God has made. So he introduces wrath. He moves to why the wrath came, its revelation, but notice the sequence after that. Now, in verse 20, he's going to add to that, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. In other words, God's revelation has been evident. It's been seen. It's clear. In fact, that's the emphasis of the passage. God has made it clear. That's why at the end of verse 20, he can say that they are without excuse. So we have a progression. God has revealed himself. That revelation <clears throat> leads to an understanding. And I'm using alliteration here again. <clears throat> I could say understanding, but I'm using ours. So revelation results. In other words, the effect of revelation is that everyone understands it. Everybody knows it. So we have realization. That leads to man being responsible. Because man knows that there are standards. God has revealed himself such that man now is responsible. That responsibility is uh, is rejection or leads to rejection. In other words, man rejects that revelation. And when man rejects that revelation, part of the process of rejection is rationalization. And rationalization ends up as reprobation. In other words, uh, not honoring God in the way that we should honor God. That affects us in our thinking. And by the time you get to verse 21... He does not give thanks because he became, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. That's reprobation. And not only that, professing to be wise, they became fools. So the rejection re- results in reprobation. And then reprobation leads to replacement. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So man becomes idolatrous. And then in verse 24, because man has rejected that revelation after realizing it, being held responsible without excuse, it affects his thinking. His thinking is distorted. He's worshiping idols. That's replacement. And then, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. I think that takes us back to verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed in the present tense. 
And he's going to illustrate from verse 24 through the end of the chapter how God gave them over in their futile speculations. In other words, this is the effects of rejecting God's revelation. Uh, So he gave them over in their lusts, basically the consequences of our own actions. We have a whole list of this, a list of sins. And all of this is the effects of rejecting. So you have this progress that leads to these effects. Verse 24, for this reason God gave them over. So we have a second repetition. By the way, the identical same word is used there. Gave them over to degrading passions. Another list. And then 28, just as they did not see fit. Just kind of reiterating what he said uh, earlier in verse 21. They didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Again, the same phrase for the third time. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Then we have the final long list. So we have revelation, realization, responsibility, rejection. All of these follow one another. These are all the effects. Rationalization, reprobation, replacement, ending in what? Wrath. Sounds like it starts with an R at least, right? But the main thing I'm showing is trying to show this progression, these effects, the effect of rejecting God's revelation that is fully realized, making men fully responsible by rationalizing it away as a an effect on our thinking. We have a twisted thinking now. In that twisted thinking, we replace the true God with idolatry, and that results, or the effect of that is wrath. And I think it's wrath in the present tense. So that's causation. You might have that. Well, maybe I shouldn't use Ephesians. I'll let you uh, see how causation is used in Ephesians. Some of you even picked it up in uh, your book study. But you can see it. Let me give you another example. Acts 1 and 2. Acts 1 and 2 gives us a promise of power. And then in Acts chapter 2... That power is displayed at Pentecost, and the effects of that power is the rest of the book of Acts, the establishment of the church as a result of the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church, particularly the the early apostles. So, progression from cause to effect. The alternative of that, you might have what's called substantiation. It's movement in the other direction. Movement or progress from effect back to the cause. The example I've used for this one, 2 Samuel 12. Verses 1 through 7. Remember, that's in the context of David's sin with Bathsheba. In fact, it's after. It's the after effects of it. 
That's the little parable that Nathan tells to David about an evil man. And uh, when he's done with the parable and David is sufficiently angry at that evil man and pronounces judgment on him, condemnation, now Nathan's going to reveal the cause, and the cause is that David is that man. David, you're the one that caused this unrighteous condition. You are the man. So it's a movement from the effects by way of a parable that is detached from David to David, who is the actual cause of the evil situation in reality outside of the parable. And this is obviously, you know, this is a wise thing for a prophet to do because at the hands of the king in that culture, anyone that has a misstep can be easily executed. So Nathan, even being a prophet, uses a very, very much wisdom here and a very good tactic. So he doesn't deal with David directly because he may not get far in his discussion. So he gives a detached parable to show that David is the one that's the cause of the situation. So that's substantiation. Number 12, there's a literary device by the name, but that we identify as instrumentation. And again, if you don't remember these names, that's, that's not what's important. What you need to observe and remember is the way that material is arranged by any given author. In other words, how is he structuring his material? Because when he's structuring his material in a certain way, he is trying to create certain effects besides the very words that he's using. He, he's using literary devices. We see that Jesus is very effective in his use of these literary devices, so also other passages, other writers. Instrumentation is setting forth the means to an end, as well as the end in itself. Sometimes purpose is involved here, so a means to an end. We won't look this passage up, but if you remember, we read John chapter 20 when I was talking about purpose. The last two verses there, 30 and 31. John explains, and I'm paraphrasing, he says something to the effect that uh, Jesus performed many, many other miracles, but he selected these miracles or signs for a particular purpose. In other words, he's setting forth the means to an end. So these miracles that he lays out there have the purpose of giving people evidence that they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and then the ultimate end is that they may have eternal life. So he gives them the means to the end in terms of the whole book, the whole book of John. So here's an example again where we have a whole book in view. 
but you might find it within a smaller portion of Scripture as well. Galatians 6, 7 through 10, we have a paragraph. The essence of that is what a man sows, he reaps. And Paul expands that in that passage. But basically, we have uh, an end accomplishing, or a means accomplishing an end. Uh, Whatever you sow, and you could think of, I guess, examples there. Uh, it's going to have consequences or it's going to have results. It's going to end in a certain way. So you can have it in narrative material. You can have it in uh, in um, epistolary literature. I'm expounding uh, Romans chapter 5 right now in the study that I'm doing at the church I go to. And in that, that's the chapter following the passages dealing with justification by faith. I see chapter 5 as somewhat transitional from justification to the, the next, what was it, section, was it? Dealing with sanctification. And it's talking about those who have been justified, having been justified, verse 1, have peace, he talks about peace, have access to grace, uh, ultimately will be glorified. And then in uh, verse 3, uh, he talks about tribulation. So justification is going to end, one of the ends, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a life free of trouble once we trust Christ, once we're justified by Christ. But in fact, we can expect trouble. In other words, it's going to end in tribulation. So he deals with that issue in that passage. So justification could be viewed as the means that was is going to end in a Christian's tribulation. And there's lots of examples, but there's a couple of examples for instrumentation. There's the principle of explanation where the writer might give an explanation or an interpretation that helps us to understand maybe a larger portion that he, that precedes it, or uh, maybe an extended portion where now he, he kind of gets to a clear explanation. So it's a presentation of an idea or an event followed by its interpretation. This is similar to particularization, but there are some distinctions that could be made between this one and particularization. Some of the parables that Jesus gave, for example, the parable of the four soils, are are followed, that parable is followed by an interpretation of the parable, where, where Jesus explains some of the details of some of the imagery that he uses in the four soils. So he expands it by giving an explanation. In Matthew 13, some of the parables in that context also, some of them have interpretations for uh, for the reader. So that would be an illustration where we have uh, an interpretation. 
Sometimes prophecies and visions are interpreted for us as well, particularly in the book of Daniel and some in other portions as well. Daniel and Revelation. Fourthly, the principle of proportion or emphasis. This is the, uh, this is emphasizing or de-emphasizing by using different amounts of material that the author includes or excludes. It can go either way. Principle of proportion. We can use all of the four Gospels, because all of them utilize this principle. If you look at them as a whole, particularly Luke and Matthew, give a little bit of the early life of Christ. Now, Luke doesn't give us all 30 years, but he does mention the birth narratives. He mentions an occasion at age 12, when Jesus was 12 years old. And then he ends that portion that Jesus is 30 years, 30 years old. So there's 30 years in there in only a little over four or three chapters, part of chapter four there. So there's 30 years of the life of Christ. Then you have two and a half years from about, depending on how you deal with the chronology there, from chapter four, verse 14 to chapter nine, verse 50. And then in the next division, only six months from 951 to 1928. And most important are the final eight days of the life of Christ. So he's emphasizing the importance of all of the events surrounding the death, and particularly the death, and then following that with the resurrection. Now we have a few more days there. But just by the the amount of material devoted to that very short, condensed period of time by the principle of proportion, that is what is most important in the gospel. Or, there, or it's a high, uh, high importance, those last days, eight days of Christ's life. So the principle or the literary device of proportion. And you could outline all four of the Gospels in a similar way. Mark doesn't include any of the early life, so that is by the same principle uh, not as important obviously as the entire ministry of Christ because it's totally omitted. Another example would be the book of Genesis again. We divide it into two divisions, primeval history that covers in 11 chapters 2,000 years. Very brief, very brief explanations. Uh, several genealogies in there that take a lot of the narrative there, yet about 2,000 years using a very conservative chronology there. And when we get to chapter 12 through 50, only deals with 300 years, but we have an expanded narrative which tells you that the patriarchal history is really what Moses is is getting at, and you might even view chapters 1 through 11 as more introductory to the uh, life of Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel.
So by proportion, the patriarchal history is more important than the early events of primeval, primeval history. So that's the literary device of proportion. Summarization. The principle of summarization, it's the employment of a shortened portion or an abridgment, you might say. And oftentimes, if you find it, it's usually at the beginning of a book, or you might have a summary of the whole book, summarization. Now, you might have something like this elsewhere as well, but there are some well-known passages that we would identify as displaying uh, this principle. Back to the Book of Romans, you could consider chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 as a summary of the whole book. You have in that passage, that very brief passage, kind of a summary of everything else that Paul is going to deal with, and the rest of the book kind of expands uh, the righteousness that he's talking about in that passage. And the two main elements of it is uh, the righteousness dealing with justification and then the righteousness as it's lived out. So it kind of summarizes the whole book. Uh, Revelation, well, no, let's see, Acts, Acts 1.8 might be an example of summarization and in Acts 8 remember let me read it so that we're accurate in it kind of a summary of the whole book or you could use it as even an outline of the book but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You could uh, divide the book of Acts, the first seven chapters, all surrounded around Jerusalem where they are witnesses. In fact, it's a summary of their ministry. They share the gospel primarily in Jerusalem. There's persecution at the end, the martyrdom of Stephen, and then beginning in chapter 8, that persecution moves the early uh, apostles and disciples outside of Jerusalem, and now they minister in Judea and Samaria. And Acts 1.8 even groups those two together when it says, and in all Judea and Samaria... And that runs all the way to chapter 11, and then beginning in chapter 12, we have primarily the ministry of Paul, where the gospel is taken to the ends of the earth, or the remotest parts of the earth. Some kind of a nice geographical outline of the book of Acts, but you have it summarized in uh, verse 8 in chapter 1. I think I used, no, I didn't use this, I used a verse close to it, but the book of Revelation, you could summarize it from uh, verse 19 of chapter 1, where John is instructed to record 
or write what he has seen, the things you have seen, which would include the vision of chapter 1. And Jesus says, and the things which are present tense, in other words, things that existed in the time frame of John, that's the church age. So he deals in chapters 2 and 3 with seven churches. And then he says, and the things which shall take place after these things, that's 119. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, that's how it begins. Uh, it talks about the things after these things, and that runs all the way through the end of the book. So you might have a summarization and something of a maybe a thema- thematic or maybe a time frame breakdown of the book of Revelation in chapter 1, verse 19. So that's summarization. There's a couple of others. In fact, there's several others. There's chiasm. You've probably heard of chiasm. That's very common in scripture. Chiasm deals with, let's see if I can find it in my notes here. Specifically, chiasm is used utilizing four elements, not technically. I've also noticed that some Bible teachers describe chiasm, including more than four elements, but actually there's another literary device called inversion, where you have more than four elements. But either one of them, you have a similar pattern where you have a line or an element at the beginning, and then you have a lesser element next, and then that one is in parallel with the next one, and then the fourth element is in parallel with the first one. So the two metal parallel elements uh, relate to one another, and the two uh, distant elements are related to one another or are similar. Uh, that's chiasm. And I think you probably encountered some of that before. Uh, an example, well, I don't have an example. Let's see. I don't have one on a slide, but you might take a look at Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6. Uh, Matthew 7 Verse 6 would be another example. One that is not as well known, but I've kind of encountered it more, primarily in the exegetical process, is called inclusio. And what inclusio, and I'll give you a good example of it, an inclusio pattern or literary device is where a portion is put together with a beginning word or phrase, and then it's ended with that same phrase or word. In other words, it's like a bookend. The two bookends are very similar or identical, and then everything in between uh, goes together. 
when I was exegeting through the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is probably, I think, probably the most difficult book of the New Testament. At least it was the most difficult for me to exegete. And it's difficult structurally in some ways, uh, and particularly this passage of Hebrews 5.11 and through 6.12. It's not clear where that passage ends. In fact, it actually follows from what we have in chapter 5. But I think there's a unit from 5.11 to 6.12, if in fact it is inclusio, if in fact what the author is doing is he's giving you a beginning bookend and he's giving you the end bookend. And let me just illustrate by giving you kind of the rough outline of the book of Hebrews here. First division deals with the superiority of Christ all the way through verse 18 of chapter 10. Actually, that should begin in verse 1, unless you have an introduction there. Then you have a subdivision. He has Christ superior over Old Testament personalities. That runs through chapter 7. You have superiority over Aaron, 5 through 7. There's two other parts before that, where Christ superior over angels, superior over Moses and Joshua. And then 3, we have superiority superiority over Aaron and in there you have uh, the let's see superior over the priesthood Christ's priesthood 5 1 through 10 and then B there we have a third warning it's we have the third of five warnings in the book of Hebrews and that five that third warning runs from chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20. And there's two parts to it. The first part, I think, ends in verse 12. And when I was exegeting it, I wasn't clear where to break it down, because it seemed like it could have broken down the paragraph before 6.12, or it might have run all the way to 6.20. And I came to the conclusion that there were actually two parts in the warning. The first one is encouragement to maturity. Then the second part is God is going to be faithful if you are uh, striving for uh, maturity. God will be faithful. That's 6, 13 through 20. But the key there to me, what kind of settled it for me, was in verse 11, You have, let me just read that passage. You have a particular word, and by the way, that word does not occur very frequently. And if I remember, this may be one of the, well, this is one of the few places, if not the only two places where it occurs. But in verse 11, concerning him, referring back to Melchizedek, we have much to say. So now he's kind of departing uh, from the main topic that he's dealing with. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull, nathroi, it's in the plural, since you have become dull of hearing. And then he has this very difficult passage 
that has a lot of elements to it. I'm not going to get into the details because we're running out of time here, and I want to get to uh, kind of an illustration here. Uh, but what kind of sealed it for me is when I got to verse 12, and I noticed, and actually one of the commentaries pointed it out, that verse 12 seems to be the end of the inclusio because he uses that rare word again, nothroi, but it's not translated dull, but it's the same idea. Verse 12, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then verse 13 seems to move into another paragraph there. So the two bookends, if you will, or the inclusio and everything in between hangs together. It's between verse 11 with Nathroi and then verse 12 of chapter 6, same identical word, Nathroi, seeming to close the book there. So that's Inclusio. So it can kind of seal together different passages. So that structure, those are observations and As I said, these are not as easy as observing terms. The two types, just in review here and conclusion, there's grammatical, that's primarily syntactical relationships within a sentence. There's also literary structure. We've been dealing with that the bulk of our time here today, which deals with the broader literary relationships Sometimes between sentences, sometimes even within sentences, uh, relationships between paragraphs, and then sometimes all the way to the level of books, how an author arranges his material. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time here, but let's use the rest of our time to look at an example, and let's make some observations. And this is from the book of Hebrews. And the first question, since we have time, let me just let you know, this is a complete sentence. We have two verses, one sentence. Obviously, God is always capitalized when it refers to the one true God, so it's the beginning of the sentence, but if there was another word there, it would be capitalized, and you don't have a stop or a period until the end there, world. So we have a complete sentence. So let me read it real quickly. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, comma, there's a comma after God, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, comma, whom he appointed heir of all things, comma, through whom also he made the world. Okay, one sentence, many parts. Can anyone venture to identify the first independent clause? Or maybe I should say an independent clause. I don't know if it's the first one. Anyone see anything there? 
No. Can anyone identify the subject of the sentence? Because this will be a clue to the independent clause. Yeah, I was, I was looking at it. It looks like God is the subject and has spoken is the verb. Very good. For the independent clause. So that could be the independent clause, but it's, it's, it's got in the middle of it, it's, it's punctuated by a dependent clause after he's spoken. Excellent observation. Did everybody watch that? God is the subject. And has spoken. That break it down here. I kind of emphasized them already. But God is the, spo- the subject of this whole sentence. Has spoken is the verb. God has spoken. And there's only one independent clause. That's the subject. And that's the verb of it. So the... The independent clause is God. Now you have to skip all the way to verse 2. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. That's the independent clause. Do you see that? Now if that's the independent clause, then everything else is just telling us something about that independent clause. It's telling us something about God, and it's telling us something about something that something about His revelation or His speaking, if you will. Everything is just telling us something about God speaking. Now, you want to look at the independent clause first in these last days. Now, we don't know what He may be referring there. That that's something we want to study, but. It gives a time frame of God speaking, at least in the main clause. And to us, now we want to take a look at who he's speaking to, the audience there. And very importantly, he has spoken in his son. So everything else is just going to add to God speaking in the last days to this audience in his son. Now you start, if we had more time, we could uh, talk a little bit more, but that is the independent clause. So now if we've identified the independent clause, the next thing you want to do, start looking for dependent clause. Now, what I'm illustrating here is grammatical analysis within a sentence. So we're talking about grammatical structure here, what we're illustrating here. So now you look for some other clues. Uh, that was Steve, right? Steve uh, correctly identified that there's something between the independent clause, God and the independent, the rest of the independent clause. Uh, what might that be? After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. What's that? Is that a, is that a, Another dependent clause or independent clause? No. Oh, that's dependent. That. Go ahead. That's a dependent clause. I think that's what you said. Yeah, that's what I said. What makes it dependent? It doesn't have a subject and a verb. Well, it does have a subject and a verb, but the after makes it dependent. Okay, yeah, you're right. He spoke is a... Yeah, he spoke. Dependent clauses have to have a subject and a verb. 
but after uh, makes it dependent. It's giving a whole time frame. So God, now it's telling us what he did before he spoke in these last days. After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. Now in verse 2, he has spoken in these last days. So it gives us kind of an Old Testament time frame, or at least that's interpretation there. At least he's giving us something that happened before whatever's happening in verse 2 in these last days. So that's a dependent clause. Now, after the independent clause that ends to us in his son, what do we have there? Whom he appointed. Uh-huh. That's, that's part of it. Keep going. That's the subject and that's the verb of another what? Dependent clause. Where does the dependent clause end? Whom? Oh, where does it end? No, that's the beginning. Things. The comma. The translators help you there. Whom he appointed heir of all things, comma. So that's a dependent clause. It has a subject he appointed, and it tells us what he appointed, heir of all things, or whom he appointed, heir of all things. And then through whom is another dependent clause, through whom also he made the world. So you have a subject, he, and a verb made. But all of this is just simply telling us about what God said. It tells us that he spoke before he spoke, in, he spoke in these last days. In other words, after he spoke long ago. And he tells us how he spoke long ago in prophets in many portions, in many ways. Now he spoke in these last days through his son. And now he's going to just expand upon uh, the vehicle that he used to speak, his son. And it just tells us he appoint, whom he appointed heir of all things, and also that uh, this son made the world. So he is going to be the inheritor of everything, according to that dependent clause, and he's also the creator of the world. So everything else is just telling us something about God speaking. And the key... Indicators of your dependent clauses is after it introduces the first dependent clause. And then whom he appointed, whom, introduces the second dependent clause. And then through whom introduces the uh, fourth dependent clause. See how we, see how easy this is? This is a relatively complicated little sentence here. There's a lot of sentences in the letters that are far more complicated as well. And the more complicated the sentence, the more important will be this, this kind of breaking it down to, to try to figure out 
you know, how are, how are all of these things related? And at this stage, all we're doing is just we're making observations and we're observing these, these words that introduce these dependent clauses we're identifying and these are observable. In other words, you can, you can observe independent clauses just from grammar. Uh, that does not get into the interpretation yet. In other words, who are these prophets? That gets into interpretation. Who is the us? Spoken to us. Who is the us? That, get in, that gets into interpretation. Uh, even the specifics of this time frame. When did that happen? That goes into interpretation. But we can make these other observations concerning the structure of uh, this one one sentence. Tells us something about the sun being appointed heir of all things. Now, we may not know what that means. What does that mean? That's interpretation. And this idea of him making the world, um, that may be clearer, but still, uh, when we expand upon it, we'll talk about interpretation. Is that helpful? Now, this is grammatical. Grammatical structure, observing grammatical structure. This is what you want to do, sentence by sentence. This is the starting point. These are the things to make observations when you're making observations on structure. And you can go further into this and see other relationships, but those are the main relationships. Clauses, subjects, and verbs. Make it clear? Very clear. Any, any questions before we leave? No questions. You may, you may have already talked about this. Is, when's assignment two due? Is it due next week? I think it's due next week, isn't it? I'm, I'm trying to look at yeah, I believe it's due next week. In fact, uh, we'll go over that after I, uh, we end here. Okay, I have no questions. Let's see. Who's going to close for us? You asked me to. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Father in heaven, we are so very grateful that you created language for the purpose of communicating with us and so that we can communicate with each other. We thank you for revealing yourself and your plan to us in the scriptures in a way that we can understand it. We thank you for the men throughout history who have preserved the literal method of reading the scripture and writing it down and teaching it to others. We thank you for the in-depth instruction that we're receiving. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and make these things beneficial for us in reading the scripture for the purpose of being better students and teachers of your word. We thank you for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.